0: Our public safety personnel are a very thin line of people that are buffering all of the rest of us against the collective trauma that we might otherwise be experiencing on our own. We think there's a standing army of these folks, but for every 1,500 of us, you right now have one paramedic. That's it. And they really are standing between us and our darkest hours. They are the ones that are rushing into the darkness, bringing what light we can offer as a community.
1: Hi. I'm John Lajemodiere, and welcome to Go Far Together, a new podcast from the University of Regina that introduces you to some of our university's brightest thinkers. From outer space to reconciliation, from first responders' mental health to the connection between cannabis and the NFL, we'll explore how these researchers are changing the world and how we understand it right here in the prairies. Join us as we Go Far Together. Dr. Nick Carlton is a professor of clinical psychology at the University of Regina and a registered psychologist who, for over 20 years, has been researching the mental health of those we call first responders. Firefighters, paramedics, police officers, and others who risk their physical and mental well-being every day to help us in our worst moments. In the process, he has changed how we study and measure mental health issues worldwide and is helping remove stigma around mental health in the public safety community. Nick is motivated, in part, by an early first-hand experience when first responders came to help his family after a traumatic car accident.
0: My mother, who was pregnant at the time with my younger brother, was driving us home. It was the end of the workday, and as she was getting ready to turn a corner, there was a drunk driver who was speeding in a stolen car and blew through the intersection and hit the car, essentially T-boning my mother's side of the car and slamming the entire vehicle into a light post and then a little further up onto the sidewalk there. I don't remember a lot of those details. But what I do remember is that, of course, there's glass everywhere, and my mother's clearly hurt, and I can't wake her up at the time. And what I remember in bits and pieces now is that there was somebody who was there essentially right away, And that somebody was busy working with me, trying to get me out of the car. What I didn't know at the time was that that person who was first on scene was an Edmonton police officer who had just finished a shift and was walking home and witnessed the entire car accident. That same officer, though, also was managing the scene with respect to the young drunk driver who was in the car who had hit us. So not only did that officer have to make sure that that person was secured, but that they were safe. And after that, the the firefighters and the paramedics showed up. The jaws of life were used to extract my mom from the car. For me, it's quite actually a dramatic scene. But for the police officer, for the paramedics who were in the back of the ambulance, for the firefighters who were literally extracting my mother from the car, this was just another day at the office for them. They turned around. They did their jobs. They protected all of us. They delivered us to the hospital. They were literally having just one more work day. And I imagine that whoever this officer was, who was there at the end of the shift, who looked after us the whole way through, would have at some point that night then finally gone home and likely to their family, and then gotten up the next day and done the exact same thing again. So for myself and my family, this is a huge major event that happened in our lives that that changed how we experienced everything. But for all of them, This is what they deal with every single day. Today,
1: Nick works with those who witness traumatic events on a daily basis, helping them grapple with and overcome the mental health issues that are a part of the job.
2: We have, in all sectors, benefited from Dr. Carlton's, I think, truly transformational impact that he's had on the well-being of public safety personnel, but not just the personnel themselves, but the families.
1: Randy Mello is president of the Paramedic Chiefs of Canada, a national association that represents leadership across the country for paramedic services. He's seen firsthand the toll mental health can take on an increasingly overworked community. It's no secret that the pandemic has taken a toll on all
3: of us, and it's also created so many mental health issues, especially for first responders and frontline healthcare workers. Many have developed post traumatic stress disorder with
1: symptoms similar to military veterans.
0: Our public safety personnel are exposed to extraordinary numbers of potentially psychologically traumatic events as a course of doing their jobs because they're the ones we call when the rest of us have these challenges. While the day-to-day work of
1: first responders puts them at risk for any number of mental health injuries, post-traumatic stress disorder, or PTSD, is being diagnosed more and more as the demands of the job increase. But diagnosing PTSD is complicated.
0: Post-traumatic stress disorder is a constellation of symptoms that can follow being exposed to one or more potentially psychologically traumatic events. So those are events that involve usually serious threats of physical harm or death or injury or sexual assault. And then afterwards, if they begin experiencing a series of, of specific kinds of symptoms, they might meet criteria for post-traumatic stress disorder. Recent
1: reporting by the CBC and CBS has captured the toll PTSD has had on the firefighting community.
3: You know, back in the day, with any trauma event like that, it just pushed it down, tucked it away, didn't think about it, didn't talk about it. Ward Redwood is a captain with the Grand Prairie Fire Department. Post-traumatic stress disorder nearly cost him a
4: 30-year career.
1: Dozens of firefighters are killed each year in the line of duty, and
3: thousands more are injured. Many also suffer invisible wounds, including post-traumatic stress disorder.
4: Two teenagers that were in a car, and they
3: slid off the road, upside down, and into a telephone pole sideways. Um, apologize. Bear with me.
1: The teenage girl didn't survive. Russell couldn't sleep, started drinking heavily, and kept it all inside. He made a plan to commit suicide. Did you ever think PTSD?
3: No. I'd heard PTSD, and that's what happens when you go to war.
0: Symptoms clusters include sort of a re-experiencing cluster where they are remembering, they are having intrusive thoughts, they've got those kinds of nightmares that you see classically represented in the contemporary media. The nightmare was wicked. It was really through me. They also, though, usually engage in avoidance symptoms. So they might avoid thinking about, talking about, or being exposed to things that remind them of the traumatic event. They also can experience changes in their emotional affect, so they might uh, experience difficulties feeling happy, or they might experience difficulties with feeling like they're still part of the world that they're living in, somewhat to what you might experience if you were depressed.
4: When Nick began looking at PTSD and other mental health challenges related to PTSD in first responders, there was really very little research done with that population.
1: Dr. Gordon Asmundson is a full professor of psychology at the University of Regina. He's also the editor-in-chief of Clinical Psychology Review and the Journal of Anxiety Disorders. He was one of Nick's early mentors and now works with him as co-director of the Anxiety and Illness Behaviors Laboratory here at the University of Regina.
4: You know, we live in a world that has a lot of uncertainty and it impacts the way we respond to different situations the pandemic is a good example early on a lot of uncertainty about what was going on and how we should behave and how we should act and that type of uncertainty leads to a lot of stress nick helped publish a study on what has become the gold standard measure for intolerance of uncertainty called the intolerance of uncertainty scale short form that measure is used around the world he knocked the ball out of the park and has become very well known.
1: Dr. Asmonson first met Nick while he was an undergraduate pursuing a business administration degree at the University of Regina. But his psychology classes were capturing more and more of his attention.
4: In the spring of 2001, this brash young man sort of burst through my office door and said, I need an honours supervisor You're going to supervise me. Now, he'll maintain to this day that he's surprised I didn't point my finger at the door and say, get the hell out of here. But, you know, I I gave him a chance to make his case and over a very short period of time saw that he had a lot of potential. And I did end up supervising his honors thesis, which focused on some mental health impacts of 9-11,
2: the second plane had struck the South Tower at 9:02:54 a.m., just 16 minutes after the first plane went in. By then, the first teams of firemen and rescue workers had already arrived at the foot of the North Tower.
0: 9-11 was happening in real time while I was in the process of moving through my undergraduate degree. And so we were able to do research on the disastrous events that occurred on 9-11. And as part of that, one of the really intriguing things that a lot of people noticed and commented on was how many first responders and other public safety personnel rushed in to help while everybody else was quite reasonably rushing out of the area. And the incredible challenge that those folks face not only for major disasters like 9-11, but on an ongoing basis, has really been something that, that I was always interested in, I was always engaged with. I then actually didn't intend to go forward at the time, but I decided to do my master's degree in psychology here at the University of Virginia, and then eventually my clinical master's and then my doctorate in clinical psychology here. And as I moved through the education system here, I became more engaged in post-traumatic stress disorder, While the term post-traumatic stress disorder is relatively new, people have been documenting its symptoms for centuries. People have been looking into challenges related to PTSD at least since the time of the Iliad. So we're talking about, you know, thousands of years at this point. So if you look at the writings around 1641, even before then, there was lots of discussions about how people would engage in in symptoms of hysteria, they would have difficulties with mental health. There's recordings of people reporting nightmares from as far back as uh, the Great Fire of London. On the 2nd of September 1666, the Great Fire of London began at a bakery in Pudding Lane. The catastrophic fire blazed for more than 3 days and destroyed over 13,000 houses, churches and government buildings.
1: For the 40th anniversary of the term PTSD, Nick and the Canadian Institute for Public Safety Research and Treatment, where he serves as Scientific Director, created a series of videos documenting how he came to understand PTSD.
0: One of the earliest documentations of symptoms we would eventually classify as post-traumatic stress disorder appeared in 1667 and was written by Samuel Pepys after the Great Fire of London. In his quote, he wrote, I did within these six days see smoke still remaining of the late fire in the city. And it is strange to think how, to this very date, I cannot sleep a night without great terrors of fire. And this very night I could not sleep till almost two in the morning through thoughts of fire. It would be World War I that we really see a lot of data coming in with a lot of reports on various soldiers complaining about difficulties. And it was sometimes called soldier's heart. It was sometimes called shell shock. I've
4: seen young soldiers fresh out of England crack under the strain with shell shock. And even the officers suffer from it. A quick visit to the medical officer who will either tell you, pull yourself together or he'll send you for a spelling hospital with a bit of electric shock therapy. It's awful, you know. Some of the lads you see with shell shock shake so bad they can't stand up. And I once saw a chap's face frozen, his eyes open in terror all of the time. It's gonna take a long time for all of us to get over this war.
1: This documentary clip from PBS captured PTSD's effects on Vietnam veterans.
0: Post-traumatic stress disorder, or PTSD, plagues many veterans. Some have worked through it. Others continue to seek help.
4: You go to Vietnam, you're, you're you're actually a human being. You fight for a year and you spend a year in the bush. You don't even realize how much you change until you come back. I come back, I hear car noises,
0: I hear horns. I, your, your nerves are shot. You're not sure what's going to happen, and you're scared to death of everything. In Vietnam, there was, uh, there was trauma symptoms and trauma stress disorder, and ultimately in DSM, three is when you see post-traumatic stress disorder. There were a lot of researchers working on the challenges there, and they were then reporting difficulties that really today we would pretty readily identify as mental health difficulties. The addition of PTSD
1: to the DSM, or the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, was an important step forward. But admitting mental health issues can still carry stigma in certain cultures, like law enforcement. Some surveys find around 90% of officers believe there was stigma in seeking help.
0: They can't talk to their families because they think they're going to burden their loved ones. They think it's weak to go to a therapist, and they have nowhere to turn.
4: Indeed, it is
0: difficult to get a police officer to admit mental health concerns, much less go on the record to talk about them.
1: Here again is Paramedic Chief Randy Mello and Dr. Asmonson.
2: I consider comfortably talking to you and tell you that in 2009 I had back surgery because I had a herniated disc as a paramedic. That's fairly common, unfortunately. And I can tell you how the procedure went, what I felt like when I was uh, before operation, what I felt like, what my recovery was like. I have no problem talking to you about that. But we still don't have that same comfort to talk about our mental health.
4: I think that it's important to say that there's a certain culture that exists, and those cultures may vary a little bit within each of the public safety personnel cohorts. But They all have a, a certain type of culture that, to a degree, stigmatizes sharing mental health challenges.
2: We've made, I think, a huge amount of headway in uh, the public safety world where we t- traditionally were sort of that bravado group that didn't want to admit that we were having any kind of issues. We felt as though if we said that we were struggling in some way, then you weren't really able to fit the job. And, you know, that, that's
0: some kind of a personal failure, I suppose. I think that's largely because of the interaction between what we hope that they can do for us and what they do do for us, the narratives that we all tell ourselves for that, right? We see people with badges and and uniforms rushing in to help us in our darkest hours. Well, those are our heroes. So, of course, they don't need help because they're our heroes. But we forget that there are real human beings behind those uniforms, wearing those uniforms, and they have families and their challenges themselves. Nick and his team are currently
1: working to break down those barriers in a first-of-its-kind longitudinal PTSD study with the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, in which they monitor the mental health of cadets in real time. Just
3: by virtue of talking about different topics, it, it, it does help to kind of break down some of the stigmas that are out there. We've heard that firsthand from some of the members that are out in the field, that people are more comfortable talking about their mental health,
1: Dr. Jonathan Burry works with Nick as the Program Director of the RCMP PTSD Longitudinal Study.
3: I organize a team of technical staff, clinicians and researchers that go about delivering the uh, RCMP PTSD study to roughly a thousand RCMP members and cadets.
0: The project that we're leading with the RCMP is very large, I would suggest probably unprecedented in size, scale and depths. In Canada, all RCMP are trained at the same place, and that's at depot here in Regina, Saskatchewan. And it's a 26-week training program.
4: Your life as a civilian is over. Your first name from now on is Cadet.
0: Because they're all trained at the same place and then deployed to a variety of different environments, it really provides a fantastic tool set wherein you can engage in research to help protect RCMP mental health going forward. You can measure them right as they're coming into depot and see what their mental health looks like, try and understand what they understand about mental health, look for opportunities for supporting their resilience. You can then follow them throughout the training. You can measure them again just before they're deployed so you know what their mental health looks like immediately before they're being deployed. And then you can follow them thereafter.
4: Because... Previous work had really looked at people who were on the job in a cross-sectional way. So just taking a snapshot at a particular time and sort of looking at them together. In Nick's approach, he's taken a longitudinal strategy and applied it to understanding what's going on. So looking at people when they come in for initial training, when they start their initial deployment and through the course of their deployment to see how these mental health challenges how post-traumatic stress injuries may develop over the course of a career as opposed to a cross-section of many careers
1: as a result nick and his team are developing accessible evidence-based strategies for public safety personnel to share mental health challenges in a confidential way that they might not have had before.
0: And if we can do it for the RCMP, by extension we can do it for anybody who puts on a uniform. At least theoretically we can. So we can begin deploying it to broader and broader environments.
3: There's interest in the work that we're doing at a municipal level here in Saskatchewan, but also in different parts of Canada. Dr. Carlton's research is being recognized by policing forces around the world, in the U.S., and even into other countries like Australia. There's definitely interest in kind of growing this, and we get inquiries regularly about that.
2: And if it wasn't for the great work of Dr. Carlton and, and everybody at SIPCERT, we wouldn't have had such a vast knowledge about how to handle those different types of stressors. So he's an awesome guy. He's, he's a, a funny guy. He's a kind guy. Um, he's just an all-around great human being.
4: I'm smiling because I'm thinking of different adjectives that describe Nick, but I go back to sort of that brash or bold undergraduate student who kind of burst through the door, and he has a magnetic personality, he's very intelligent, he cares deeply about the mental health of the community but has this special affinity towards the mental health of the public safety personnel community.
2: Nick could be credited as one of the the top motivators for me in terms of my passion as well about supporting the mental health and wellness of, of my team. As Nick continues
1: to work with public safety personnel, in the back of his mind is the car accident he had
0: as a little boy. So these people literally saved my family and then did it again and again and again. The more you get to know any of them, the more you really understand the deep respect that we should have for them and the service they provide to all of us. I think it's very easy for us to forget as a community what they do for us every day because we just see little snippets of it. But if you have the opportunity to spend time with them, if you have the opportunity to walk a proverbial mile in their shoes, all of a sudden the deep well of gratitude and respect that you have for them as a community, both individually as sector groups and collectively as public safety personnel, I think it's very hard not to feel a deep debt, a deep sense of gratitude and a sense of debt for the sacrifice that they make for all of the rest of us. That feeling for me gets more intense when we realize just how much of it is invisible. And some of the research that we've done recently shows in in almost a painful irony, the thing that they most commonly ask for is actually recognition from their communities for the jobs that they do and the service that they're providing, a little bit of understanding for the challenges that they face in doing that for all of us and how it's not easy. That gratitude goes both ways. When you get a note back telling us that we've made a real positive difference for them, or telling us that one of the tools we've built, or one of the pieces of training we've provided has made a huge difference. I think those are the really impactful moments for me. As a researcher, sure, when your hypotheses are supported by the data, when you you get published, and when you do those wonderful things, that's fantastic. But ultimately, the most meaningful part is the next step, that you're able to apply those and make a real difference for a real person, especially one who's choosing to spend their days making real differences for all the rest of us.
1: Thanks so much
0: for joining us for another episode of
1: Go Far Together. Join us next time as we speak to Dr. Samantha Lawler, observational astronomer and leading advocate for preserving the natural beauty of the night sky from the detrimental effects of satellite light pollution.
0: My goal is to tell people (laughs) that the night sky is being changed and it doesn't have to be.
1: Be sure to like and follow this podcast and visit uregina.ca to learn more about the groundbreaking work at the University of Regina.